You're listening to Special Education Matters, a regular podcast about things that matter in special education. I'm your host, Michael Bull, and I am the proud father of an 18-year-old boy with autism. Teacher, then learning coach, on to administrator, and finally, landing as a special education advocate is the path that Marta Levaugh, my guest today, took as she became a dynamic advocate for students with special needs. We talk all about her path, as well as her 90% success rate that she has without going to due process. And on top of that, she's writing a manual to assist teachers and educators for working with kids with special needs. Enjoy the conversation. Marta Levaugh, thanks so much for joining me on the program today. Thank you for inviting me. Great to have you here, and great to talk with you. We talked already once before, so I feel like we know each other a bit, and that'll probably make this interview even better than ones in the past. So let's just start off with uh, what services do you provide as an advocate? Well, I am a special education advocate, so what I do is I support families as they work with districts to try to um, provide their children with a free and appropriate public education. I... In doing that, what I offer the clients is educational consulting. I analyze the students' records, and I develop an educational plan to support student learning. All right, great. And what parts of California? It looks like you're down in San Diego, right, do you cover? I am in San Diego. Um, I also go out to Imperial Valley, and I've actually flown up to... Um, Sacramento. I've had cases mm-hmm. up there. And I, I also do work as an expert witness in family court. Oh. And I've done that in the state of Wyoming and in the state of California, in Imperial Valley. Is there a lot of difference between Wyoming and California when it comes to special education services? I'm just kind of curious. Actually, you know, I... My job as as an expert witness was to talk about um, the students' response, I guess it, you would say, or, mm-hmm. or how the student would be affected um, by the decisions being made by the court based on his disability. So I wasn't really looking at the services being provided to him. I was looking more at, okay, so how would how would these decisions affect the student and what can one expect um, from a student that has the disability that this young man has. So Marta, there's a lot of reasons to become an advocate and you have a little bit of a backstory on it looks like family related when it's on your website there for people to look at. But yeah. Tell us a little bit about why you decided to become an advocate. So I had been in education uh, for about 20 years by the time I made the decision. I had actually started while I was in college working for a public school system as a behavioral aid, and this was Uh. way back before behavioral aids ever really existed. And um, then I became a bilingual classroom teacher. I always worked with uh, the special education teachers and we practiced inclusion way back before inclusion was ever in. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I became a, a coach, and then I became uh, an administrator at a large charter school. And right after that happened, I, I was actually, I, I became ill. And so I had to take some time off. And during the time that I was on disability, a nephew of mine invited me to his IEP meeting. Mm-hmm. I attended his IEP meeting in a local district district here in San Diego County. And I was 
really surprised to see that he was, they had already determined in this district that he would be on a functional, uh, in a functional program for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was only in fifth grade. Oh, wow. And they had already determined what his life would be like. So I uh, attended three meetings. And after eight hours of meetings, I was really surprised um, when the teacher said to me, and she knew I was on disability, that I was a school administrator, mm-hmm. that what could you expect from, uh, from students that come from bilingual homes? So in addition to having determined that he would not be able to learn because of his disability, um, the fact that he came from a home where three languages were spoken was actually held against him. And I was really shocked to find out. And right, of I just I couldn't believe this. So I decided I needed to look further into um, what was going on. I had sat in a, a, a huge amount of IEP meetings, but this was the first time that I was actually sitting there as an advocate. Right. So that's how I got started. So you talk about your pathway from teacher to coach to administrator to advocate. So when you sit down in the room at, let's say, an IEP or you're meeting parents for the first time, do you feel like that gives you an an advantage? I mean, you must be able to think behind the scenes what is happening from the teacher's point of view as well, but also now be advocating for uh, a parent or a child right there. Absolutely. And and my own uh, children have disabilities. So... I had sat there as a parent. I know what it's like um, to have to confront that your child has a a learning disability and the challenges Mm -hmm. that go along with that. Um, So, yes, I I think that when I'm at the table, I understand where the parents are coming from, and I understand how personal um, the experience is and how emotional it is. I also understand, as a former administrator and a former classroom teacher, mm-hmm. what is expected and what the demands are on the school, both by state, federal, and district guidelines. And so I'm able to bridge, and I, I like to say that I'm able to translate parents' concerns into teacher ease make it understandable for the district what the parent is actually asking for. And I'm able to explain to the parent what the district is doing and why they are doing um, what they are doing uh, for their, for their child. So I wonder like when you sit down, let's say that IEP meeting and the district, you know, gives an offer of services, do you, is it generally the, do they generally give an offer of services based on what the child needs or what they feel like they can get away with? And given your background, you might really know what is truly available. I think uh, it depends on the district and it depends on the team. Sometimes they make an offer to see what they can get away with. Other times they've truly uh, made an effort to look at what the child needs. Whenever I go into an IEP meeting, though, I done a very, very thorough background um, study, I would say. Mm-hmm. I like to refer to it as a, a forensic study because <laughs> before I go into any IEP meeting, I've interviewed the parents 
and I have a nine-page um, packet that I give parents to tell me about how they see their child. I interview the school staff if they're open to it. I mm-hmm. always like to get their perspective. And then I do a very thorough review of educational records. If we have any medical records or if we have any psychological records, I will also go through those. Uh, I will also speak to private providers, and I always do a classroom observation before going into an IEP meeting. So by the time I go into an IEP meeting, I have formed a professional opinion about where the student is and what his or her needs are. And so, you know, when the school makes an offer, um, that offer has to align with what what I have found based on their own documentation that the student Mm -hmm. needs. And when you go into that IEP meeting, what do you think is the best approach for advocates and parents as well? Should, should, do they, should they be pushy? Should they be aggressive? Should they be polite, uh, confrontational, non-confrontational? What do you think works best? I think being collaborative is what works best. Okay. Um, it's important to establish that when we go into a meeting, we're not there to seek... Um, seek a program that is satisfying to us Mm -hmm. or to me as an advocate or to the parent, but that is a program that is designed to meet the student. And so one of the, one of the um, rules that I kind of set up is we have to remain student focused. We always have to remain student focused. And if we remain student focused, when we go into a meeting, then it's the the conversations that we have are going to be focused on helping and supporting the student, which makes it easier for the team to become collaborative. And so I think that if we go in assuming that we're all wanting the best for the child, then what we need to do, then we can work um, collaboratively to build a strong program. So, that collaborative nature, it can be successful and not successful. And sometimes you have to go to due process to push things along a little bit. In your, your experience, what, like what percentage do you think you could take care of it in the IEP meeting and resolve it versus having to push it towards due process? I would say that uh, we, I've probably been able to resolve about 90% of um, oh, great. my cases. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think it's because if there's one thing that I learned uh, in my years in the school district is that we have to have evidence. And so whenever I go in and I'm requesting on behalf of the student and the family for a service or for an assessment evaluation of some sort or increased services or different services, let's say, it's always based on the evidence that I have found in the file. And because of that, because I'm using the district's own information, I'm able to negotiate, um, I would say, about at 90% of the cases. Maybe 10% of the cases we have to file for. But even then, um, we very frequently walk out and we're all on great terms. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not really adversarial. We know that we have to go there because there's no way that the district 
um, is providing what the student needs. Now, I can imagine that going away on great terms has a direct and positive benefit in that the, I mean, it's the providers, the teachers, and the specialists that are ultimately helping a child out. And if they're happy, I suspect that they'll provide even better services. Do you think that's true? Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I remind parents and and teachers that we're, we're all human. And mm-hmm. so um, I, I like to remind parents that, you know, the teachers have their own issues going on. That's not a reason why we can excuse poor behavior, right? But we need Mm -hmm. to understand it so that we can work to overcome that behavior and to get teacher buy-in. And I think that that's a critical piece. If if we, uh, the parents and myself and the student, are able to help the team understand uh, why the student is struggling Mm -hmm. and all Mm -hmm. the effort that's being put in in the home, and privately, you can shift the way the, the team, the school team, will see the child. And very often, they will be um, the person fighting for that child's services at the school, uh, which, is, which is very frequently what happens. And, you know, you talk again about the 90% rate. Is that because it's you, Marta, there with all your background and experience that you're able to negotiate that? Or could a parent who's, you know, reasonably understands the situation and the law and all that, could a, could a parent do the same thing, have the same success? Well, I'll tell you, I, uh, another service that I've provided are parent workshops. And so ah. I do believe that if a parent is well-trained, they are able to also get these services. I have had parents that have attended uh, my workshops, and it's been a series, you know, over three years, we did nine workshops and uh, they were quite involved and we did a lot of reflection, mm-hmm. a lot of talking about, so how you present, how do you present your child to the school? And I will tell you that the parents have been able to secure services. I've even told them, I think it's beyond what I've been able to secure because <laughs> they are the parents. And so when the school is talking with them and they see that the parent is really engaged and really willing to put forth the effort, but is also going to hold them accountable, then they're willing to work together. So I do believe parents can do it. However, I do think that um, parents may need some coaching Mm -hmm. and some extra support. And that's precisely why I'm actually working on a manual right now to help parents develop those skills. Yeah, we talked about that in the past. Tell me a little bit more about that for listeners. So this manual is going to be broken up into three different phases. The first phase is understanding the law and understanding how the law impacts uh, their child's education and what guarantees the, the parents have and the student has under federal law, IDEA. 504 plans, although that is not part of special education, but also how students can be served through a 504 plan. The second phase is really helping parents understand their child through the lens of education. And I believe that's the key. Uh, A parent, so when I'm communicating with the school, as a parent, about my child, I'm telling them about what I'm seeing here at home. But the real key to, to 
gaining the school the the school support is helping them understand that what I'm seeing here at home has an impact or can influence what is happening in the school. And so the second part of this book, which I think is really critical, is helping the parent develop a clear understanding of their child as a student. Mm, And mm -hmm. the second part of that second phase is also helping the parent understand themselves. Where are they on the grieving process? Because it's difficult when one receives a diagnosis of a child. Yes, for sure. Right? We go through lots of different stages. Where are they on this stage? When they're going into the school districts and when they're representing their child's um, education, are they fighting for what is best for their child or are they fighting because they're angry or because they're trying to blame someone? And so I think it's really, really critical for parents to understand where they are in that stage and to evaluate and to recognize their child's strengths because there are strengths that are aligned to certain disabilities. People with bipolar disorder are very creative. That's a strength. That's mm-hmm. a wonderful thing. And and so you want to look at those strengths and use those strengths to help you overcome the deficits. And so parents need to look at how they also perceive their child, where they are and what they are fighting for, and evaluate whether they're... Um, their goals are realistic and based on their child and not on their own desires. And then the final part of this uh, manual will be about preparing for an IEP. And included in that is learning how to go into the classroom and do an observation, learning why it's important before you go into an IEP to request that you're provided with the documents. And even if you don't understand them fully, go through and try and read them and mark them up and write questions. And I really encourage parents to ask questions and make sure that they understand what's going on in the meeting and don't feel embarrassed about asking questions um, because it is critical that they give their opinion, that they inform the school and that they have a clear understanding of what's going on. So, you know, so so during that third piece, we talk about uh, pre-IEP activities that need to be done. Then I talk mm-hmm. to them about um, during the IEP meeting, how to communicate effectively, what types of actions they should take. And then post-IEP meeting, how do you follow up? How do you ensure that what you agree to is what's actually on paper and that it's being implemented? And how do you do this in a way that is not going to annoy the team necessarily, but that is going to inform them that you are on top of things and you're holding them accountable? There is one piece that I did um, forget to add, and that would be in the very first phase. Not only are the parents going to be learning about the law, but I also talk a little bit about Uh, teaching and learning. And that's really critical because Mm -hmm. I think what happens frequently is that parents learn about the law, but they may not know how that translates 
into the classroom in a very practical manner and how decisions are made. And so I go into uh, several different strategies and and practices that are uh, used in all classrooms, including special education classrooms, so that parents have a bit more of an understanding of education and why decisions are made in a certain way. And Marta, we're coming towards the end of our time here. Can you uh, let listeners know a good way to get a hold of you? Sure. They can um, call me on, I'll give you two phones, <laughs> two <laughs> phone numbers. Um, they can call my office at 619-227-7969, or they can call my, my business cell phone at 619-895-4282, or they can go online at www.v as in Victor, O, Z as in Zebra, D as in Dog, Victoria.com, VazDVictoria.com. Marta, thank you so much for your time and your sharing and your information today. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to another edition of Special Education Matters. For more information, including show notes, head to our website, csnlg.com slash listen. And if you like what you hear, please uh, consider giving us a review on iTunes. Those reviews bring us lots of happiness. I'm your host, Michael Bull, and we will talk again soon.